Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to the week's TV news stories brought to you by the Broadcast Editorial Team. I'm Broadcast International Editor John Elms, and on this week's show, I'm joined by senior reporter Max Goldbart and another News Wrap debutant, Jonathan Broughton, lead analyst at Broadcast's research and analysis arm, Broadcast Intelligence. Hitting the headlines this week, the BBC sprang a surprise on the industry when it emerged that the corporation was mulling the linear return of digital channel BBC Three. Max will be teasing out the ramifications of this eyebrow-raising move, the key part of the corporation's annual plan published on the 20th of May. In another eye-opening story, Jonathan will be discussing the departure of Disney streaming chief Kevin Mayer, the popular video app TikTok, and what that means for the international streaming landscape. And a special addition to the podcast, we have an interview which Max has done with the film and TV charity chief executive Alex Pumphrey as part of Mental Health Awareness Week. All that plus the ever popular What We're Watching on today's broadcast news wrap. Hey Max, how's it going? Welcome back. Brilliant to be here, John. Last week I was hosting, but this week I'm in the guest chair. Indeed. I've gone from, I've gone from Humphreys, John Humphreys, to guest in one fell swoop. Crazy times. Absolutely. And uh, this is an absolute pleasure. JB, Jonathan. Good Jonathan morning, Broughton. John. Welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. My, my inaugural podcast. Max, uh, we're going to come to you first. You've been handling quite, quite a, a, a shocking um, in, and eye-opening announcement that the BBC is, is mulling up the, the return of BBC Three to our, to our TVs. Is that, uh, what, what's the skinny on that? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a revelation, John. Pe- people started speaking about this a couple of months ago and, and rumours were spreading. But um, I don't think anyone thought the, the suggestion was being taken particularly seriously. But as of this week's BBC annual plan, there is now a consideration that the BBC is going to return BBC Three as a linear TV channel. Because as, as we know, all 18-year-olds sit down in front of their TV at 9.30pm. So that's, that's really going to satisfy that appetite. So, so I've been having a little think and speaking to people uh, about just why the BBC might be doing this. And I, I think a, a couple of things have emerged. First of all, there is undoubtedly more linear viewing at the moment, and that is because everyone is stuck indoors. And the BBC has been very keen to clock the fact that linear audiences are going up. And that's not necessarily just for 16 to 34 year olds, but that's also for, for older audiences uh, as well. And again, with a, with a BBC Three linear channel, it's not just necessarily 16 to 34s that are gonna be sitting down and watching. But on a, on a secondary basis, there, there has always been this issue. BBC Three was taken online in 2016. It was rubber stamped in 2014, the decision. It was one of Tony Hall's first moves as DG. And since it was taken online only, there has just been a consideration that BBC Three has lost that brand and it's lost that marketing push. So even, even beyond the overnights and beyond the linear viewing, returning BBC Three to being a linear channel would at least hand it that brand back almost that, that it is so desperate for. Uh, and, and the return, uh, the, the channel is being paired with a, with a doubling of, of budget. So BBC Three's budget will return to, to 80 million pounds, which is ironically in line with what it was spending in, in 2016. So we could be in a situation in a few months time where 
in the in the fine fine words of our former prime minister Theresa May, nothing has changed. <laughs> Max, you you mentioned some of the, I suppose the positives that could see um, BBC Three moving back into a linear schedule. Is it is it been wholly supported? I've seen various people supporting the move on on Twitter, but are there people who are thinking this is a a bit of a misstep by the BBC? I think for for the aforementioned discussion of the brand, it's a good move. The BBC desperately needs to be seen to getting to grips with the young audience's question. And even though at first glance, this doesn't appear in any way like it is getting to grips with it, because it seems to show a, a misunderstanding of viewing habits, you can also argue at the same time that building that brand does show that, that youngs are at the forefront of the minds of Tony Hall, Charlotte Moore, Fiona Campbell, who runs BBC Three and, and all the associated people. But yes, I mean, there are plenty of negatives. The, the, linear, the linear viewing question has arisen. Um, I've been crunching a little bit of data and, and trying to look at how many young people are watching these BBC Three shows on linear, because we do have to remember that they do play in linear slots. They play on BBC One. Normal People has been playing out uh, at 9pm on, on mm. BBC One, back to back. And the people who are watching these are, are primarily older audiences. Uh, I think Normal People has around over 80% of its, of its audience profile are, are over the age of 35. So I don't think you could currently argue that 16 to 34s are, are flocking to these linear viewings. And that's been raised to me a couple of times. And then at, at the same time, the, the budget rises to £80 million but reinstating a linear channel in itself can be quite expensive. And several people, I think, are querying whether it would be better to give BBC Three even more budget, give it 100 million, give it 120 million, and don't reinstate it as a linear channel and have more to spend on great content. Because I think in this area, content really is the king. And what they want to do is just look to commission shows that skew young for sure, but are also just really appealing to all ages as the aforementioned normal people certainly is. Yeah, I think the the emergence of normal people as a as a brilliant piece of programming which everyone has loved, both on linear and in its digital BBC Three's digital space, which sits in the iPlayer realm. But again, that a great piece of programming does not translate to a successful linear proposition. So they the BBC, I think, feel have nailed programming and content for those younger audiences. I mean, Normal People is a wonderful example. And some of their other stuff, you know, the BBC Three uh, material has been great. But of course, making good programming is different from attracting audiences back to a, a, a viewing habit that has largely disappeared for you. Um, I, I wondered if we could get your, your input quickly, Jonathan, seeing as you are research and analysis guru, thoughts have you had on, on this move? Yeah, my, my first thought um, harked back to when, when BBC was originally, well, BBC Three was originally taken off air, and I was working at a, a little media boutique called Screen Digest at the time. And I, worked, I wrote quite, a, quite an angry piece, I would have thought, because um, I felt that, you know, as, as many did in, 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 in the sort of community, this was kind of diminishing the importance of, of kind of the younger audience at the time. And it was, it was endemic of a lot of criticism that was being thrown at the BBC at the time, which was essentially saying, you know, they didn't care about younger audiences, they weren't catering to them. So what I can say is that, you know, regardless of whether it's a particularly effective method um, of, you know, catering to those audiences, 
you know, it, it is a step in the right direction. It's really positive. It gives prominence to, you know, audiences which are, you know, not necessarily normally associated with BBC One and BBC Two. Um, I think the other thing to bear in mind is BBC Three, when it was a linear channel, not only um, sort of over-indexed with uh, younger audiences, it also over-indexed with the, 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 the BAME community. Um, and reinstating that, you know, outside of age demographics, for example, I think is, is hugely important. Whether it works or not, I, I don't think is, is that important. I think the point is it's, it's actually fairly progressive. Um, and I'd love to see you know, the BBC doing more steps, trying things out rather than you know, outright succeeding. Um, certainly, as an experiment, I, I really hope it, it, it works out. Uh, and I think it's hugely positive. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's a very important um, point to make. We are often told that the TV landscape is, is risk averse, particularly where, you know, you have a public service remit and you're having to do lots and lots of things to cater for a lot of uh, audiences. And the BBC has been, has been in particular, uh, perhaps drawn over the coals by certain, you know, commentators in the past and regulating bodies for its, um, it's kind of output for certain demographics. So you make a fantastic point there. The move of BBC Three onto, onto a linear has also had a knock-on effect. It's, it's part of the BBC's annual plan uh, that was published on Wednesday. That's Wednesday, the 20th of May. We're recording on the 21st of May. Apart from that announcement, what are the other things that have caught your eye in relation to this, this startling news of BBC Three going onto linear? Yeah, there are there are a couple of things uh, in the annual plan. The annual plan tends to be less uh, revelatory than the annual report, uh, which comes out in July. Uh, but what the annual plan does do is sort of set out what the BBC's key priorities are for the for the upcoming twelve months. Other key takeaways is uh, uh, a move to consider a global SVOD for BBC Four which sort of uh, uh, solved some, some missing pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, which the, the the TV trade world had over over that mysterious move for BBC Four channel editor Cassian Harrison to to BBC Studios Global Division. So so Harrison has moved on a on a nine month attachment, uh, and he's he's mostly overseeing commissioning for BBC Studios Global channels. Uh, but what's become quite clear now, and and we ran a piece this morning, is that uh, Cassian will also be scouting out the opportunities for a, for a non-UK BBC4 SVOD. So it could be that, that maybe in a, in a year or two's time, viewers in the US, for example, who are big fans of BBC4's content will be able to pay to, to get the best of that content. Uh, and that is part of what Cassian's doing. Uh, BBC4 is still a linear channel and the BBC is insisting that it will be held up. We will see what the next director general decides. But in the interim, Patrick Holland at BBC Two will begin to start taking BBC Four's best shows and putting them on BBC Two. For me, they seem to be clearing a path for a merger between the two channels. And, and I think it will be a perfectly good move. I don't see any reason why a BBC Two viewer wouldn't be keen to, to see the best of BBC Four on a, on a Tuesday night, for example. Uh, something else I thought was um, just a, a more general a more general pointing to the fact that the BBC will be spending less on originals over the probably the coming couple of years. There are still really bad budgetary constraints. The BBC is, is attempting to save £125 million due to various impacts of coronavirus. So it looks like negotiations are now taking place with Ofcom 
to try and loosen what can sometimes be quite stringent programming quotas and a lot of this revolves around first run origination so i think what we'll be seeing soon is less first run originals from the bbc as a whole they've cut their uh, they've cut their content budget for the next year from from 1.6 billion to 1.48 billion so a, a small cut uh, and that that was clear in in the annual plan there is a bit of a uh, sort of bigger, bigger but less vibe that I think I took away from it. And JB, uh, Jonathan, you've been uh, you've been brought on largely to speak about a story that uh, I wrote um, earlier this week. It was perhaps another another surprise, you know, story in terms of the context of the landscape because we no one necessarily was expecting it anytime soon. But we're discussing the the departure of Disney's streaming chief. Kevin Mayer to um, sound, uh, sorry, uh, ByteDance, uh, the, the the Chinese company that runs that was the parent company of the very popular video app uh, TikTok, and he's left Disney to go as chief operating officer at ByteDance uh, from June the first, a role which will see him become chief executive of TikTok. Um, and the point being that he's left Disney, where he was basically in charge of their brand new streaming service, also extremely popular, Disney+. Plus. Now, I just want to get your perspective on this was quite a, a, quite a major move. I mean, it is a major move. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating move, I have to say. Um, there, were, there were so many angles on this. Um, but firstly, you know, I want to talk a little bit about companies like uh like tiktok um, or, or like bike dance um you know you might have heard of them referenced in the media as, as sort of the bats or the teeth but essentially there is a um there is a there are a number of extremely large and very successful um east asian media and tech companies um that we're starting to see encroaching on 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 western markets and bike dance kind of with, with tiktok came out of nowhere and added one to that so we're talking uh, baidu and tuko and, and, and people like that i think one of the one of the the really interesting things about this um is that they've not just poached a you know a prominent media executive from uh you know a western media company they've, they've poached someone from disney and if you're poaching someone from disney um you're taking someone from a company that doesn't sell media or it doesn't doesn't make its money off media it makes its money off stringing a range of different price points and different products together to form an incredibly efficient monetization machine um, and that's kind of where i've been thinking mayor fits into this um, and i think really tellingly you know a lot of noise was made around the fact that he's becoming the ceo of TikTok, and of course that's important, um, but he's also becoming the COO of ByteDance um, at the same time. And it's, it's an operational capacity um, that he'll be, or an operational role he'll be taking at ByteDance that I find really fascinating about this. So for a bit of background, ByteDance looks like, uh, you know, the, the, a baby Google of the, the 21st century. It's not just uh, a team UGC app, um, it is, advanced search capabilities, it is AI software that writes news pieces, um, it is subscription music streaming. So it's got a lot of disparate parts. Um, so my, my thought on it, was on, on why 
why Mayer, why have they gone after Mayer, is they've got someone who's got uh, experience of working in Western markets, so big tick there. Um, and even more importantly, someone who understands how to pull dis disparate modules together and fit them together to, to provide a really efficient uh, monetization machine. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, there's also an element of this that, that you know, as you, as you mentioned it, by taking someone as prominent as Kevin Mayer has been in recent weeks, in recent months, because of the successful rollout of Disney Plus, um, and bringing him over to that, they they by dance become more of a of a thing in 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 the markets, the mature media markets that we have, uh, that we that we cover um, in, in in the UK and and the US. One of the things I just want to quickly touch on before we before we leave this topic is is the fact that because we have got uh, Kevin Mayer, who uh, a, a streaming exec, going to bite dance and and by extension TikTok. That that video app is very predicated. The success of it is predicated of the short content, you know, the kind of irreverent stories that the creators creators uh, create. And I, I half jokingly, tongue in cheek, mentioned in a in a discussion with you the other day that we might now see the original content strand from TikTok emerge. <laughs> are we are we too early to think that the, he might in, try and instigate something like that, and there you can join the likes of Instagram and Snapchat and all those short form. I think that's yeah, completely quickly. reasonable, John. I have to say, I mean, yes. Why, why poach a guy um, like Mayor unless you're going to, you know, try and use some of that knowledge he's got on on content? I'd say, even fact, further supporting that, why have why have you know the other players of this ilk got into original content? Is because you know their audiences, uh, not to be too disparaging of the younger generation, want to do that, but. Uh, they're a little bit fickle. Uh, we know they're very happy to to move on to the the next big entertaining thing as soon as it occurs. It's only Instagram that's really held on to to those kind of audiences. Um, and ByteDance must be you know hugely aware that their popularity that they have in this instance is something they must hold on to with both hands. You know, I, I mentioned before there are some other modules that could be perhaps slotted into that to build out something which is perhaps a little bit more uh, comprehensive. Uh, but yeah, look, I, I think fundamentally your point that Will Mayer be looking at original content to, to kind of extend the longevity of the TikTok platform? Absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, it's Mental Health Awareness Week this week and Max um, spoke with film and TV charity Chief Executive Alex Pumphrey to discuss the work the charity has been doing in the mental health space. Uh, they have been at the forefront of this movement and here is what he had to say to us. So I'm joined by Alex Pumphrey, the Chief Executive of the Film and TV Charity. Alex, how are you doing? Hello, I'm very well, Max. How are you? Good, you're not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. Surviving. Surviving yeah. as it is. How's your lockdown been? Um, pretty chaotic. Um, I've got two small children. I've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old. So the combination of childcare and homeschooling and trying to uh, do a fair amount of work is is um, is, is a problem without a solution, I think. <laughs> well, we at Broadcast have been have been super impressed by the work of the charity over the past couple of months, uh, pivoting <laughs> towards towards helping uh, those people hit hardest by COVID nineteen. But also at the same time, you've continued to do some great work in the area of mental health. Uh, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're, we're recording on Monday the 18th and 
you've just launched a new uh, kind of online community resource uh, to help to help people struggling with mental health issues. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that first? Yeah, absolutely. So part of our COVID-19 response has been seeing what we can do to support people in a number of ways. I mean, we know that a huge proportion of particularly the freelance workforce are out of work now, um, which is a huge stressor for people. They'll be isolated. And, you know, obviously everyone's living a lockdown life, which... Um, which is very difficult so um there's a number of things we've done the thing we've announced this morning which um we're really pleased to have partnered with um big white wall on is this online it's a peer support but clinically moderated um community so there are professionals who who watch those conversations and can um, help and intervene in them but the lovely thing about it is it is about bringing people together, helping you to help other people. And we think it's a fantastic offer. And it's the first time actually that it's been offered to a, uh, a wider community like this. Normally it's offered within an organisation and an organisation subscribes to it. But we've managed to do it in such a way with Big White Wall that we can open it up to the whole industry. So employees and freelancers as well. Good stuff. Good stuff. And, and what is it? I mean, uh, apart from this. Uh, but in in relation to to mental health, still, what what is it that you've been focusing on uh, since since the lockdown started a few weeks ago? Well, we um, we've we've been really focused on this topic of mental health for I mean, really the last year. And as you know, we did a big piece of work last year exploring mental health within the industry and some pretty alarming findings about really high levels of poor mental health. You know, obviously, the minute all of this started, we were already quite anxious about what that would mean for our workforce, knowing the kind of the, the history, the pre-existing conditions that are there, um, knowing the vulnerability of the freelance workforce and how precarious life can be. And we did a survey at the end of March, um, which found that 93% of freelancers were not working at that point in time. We had to kind of look quite quickly we, we had a plan already and as with everyone's plans that was sort of no longer the right plan so we had to kind of reformulate our plan but the approach has been to try and look after four four different things four different pillars to what we're trying to do and one is to look after people's financial well-being um the second is more explicit mental health support the third is around what we call community and connections and the fourth is what we call purpose and productivity and that's because like we know that well-being is it's got different dimensions to it. It's about your financial well-being, your social well-being, your physical health and your mental health. And we're trying to take quite a holistic approach to give that really rounded support to individuals in lots of different ways. So that's what we're doing at the moment. And um, so it's everything from the support we offer through the support line, including, uh, you know, we've introduced new video therapy, um, online uh, CBT courses we've also introduced bereavement counseling for people a couple of weeks ago we launched something called community grants which are small-scale grants for people um, either on their own or setting up grassroots organizations to try and do things to help the industry community and we wanted to support and encourage that so the community grants scheme is small-scale grants to you know if it's covering the cost of a zoom subscription for example to help people do that uh, has there anything has there been anything that has particularly surprised you about the sort of adverse mental health impacts that that this crisis has caused? That's an interesting question. I mean, to be honest, I mean, even the professionals still don't know a huge amount about the mental health impacts of the pandemic and the lockdown that goes with the pandemic. There, there's some 
research you know there are bits and pieces of research that have come out for our industry you know i suppose we've been conscious that there are added risk factors which are we knew there was high prevalence of mental health problems we know that isolation is a contribution to poor mental health and we know that joblessness is a contribution to poor mental health and all of those are obviously things that are impacting our people um, in the industry at the moment in terms of things that you know your question about what surprised me i think there is also a remarkable resilience within that community and that's kind of come to the fore i think there's been a real generosity of spirit i mean i spoke before about the way in which people have been helping one another and setting up new initiatives and groups and um you know if it's free pilates sessions or um uh, seminars on how to look after yourself i think there's a huge amount of that which is really i love this sense of the industry community and we talk about it a lot because it feels it's always felt important to us to be able to foster that and the fact that that's just happening naturally i think is really wonderful but I suppose on the negative side, I think the other thing that we're seeing is all of those um, those kind of pre-existing concerns that people had, um, the freelance workforce I'm talking about specifically here, about the way that they had to work and the precariousness and the vulnerability of it. Before this happened, I think, and we had a lot of that through the survey work we did last year, but before all of this unfolded, people would have been quite, I don't want to say scared because I don't think it's a fear, I think unable to speak up about that because there was always this very strong sense that you you know, you know, were looking out for your next job all the time. So you kept quiet, whatever it was that you didn't like or went wrong or you thought was bad behaviour on the last job, you just sort of keep your head down and you plough on and you'd wait for it to finish and you'd move on to the next thing. Whereas now I think there's something interesting because people, you know, a, a large number of people are out of work and so there's almost nothing to lose, I think, for them. And therefore, I think that, that freelance community is being more, um, more vocal than it's been before. You know, a little bit more strident in its views, a bit more cohesive. And I think it's, you know, I, I do think there's a really great opportunity for us as an industry to think about how we can respond to that and how we can create a positive change um in the way that we rebuild and recover from COVID-19 mm-hmm. that could make this industry a better more positive more inclusive place to work uh, thank you thank you so much for coming on Alex it's been a, it's been a real pleasure thank you so much man it's lovely to speak to you take care and now we come to I think possibly everyone's favorite because everyone wants to know what uh, broadcasts think of the tv that's going on it's what we're watching Jonathan, since you are deputy, why, why don't you start? What have you been watching on TV? I've been, I've been watching uh, Alex Pina's new show, White Lines. For those people who are, are not sure who Alex Pina is, he is the creator of Money Heist, Casa de Papel, and uh, is his new Netflix show, White Lines. Uh, what's its thrust, JB? Why, why, why is it so, why are you enjoying it so much? It's fantastic. You can, you can really tell um, that the, the writer is the same guy who produced the madness that is La Casa de Papel. Um, but at the same time, you, you can see that he's clearly thought about his audience and perhaps uh, toned down some of the madcap capers to, to some extent to, to suit a wider audience. Um, it, when I first kind of came across it, it reminded me a little bit of the, you know, the ill-fated Euro puddings um, that we saw kind of, what, 20 years ago now? Um, but I think it's been put together, you know, more respectfully with more thought about, you know, who's, who's going to be watching this. Um, 
it is going off the rails. I have to say, I haven't quite finished it yet. I'm on about seasons, uh, sorry, episode six. Um, and some of the some of the uh, the capers that the, the people are getting up to are increasingly ridiculous. So it's feeling very Spanish right now, which is which is why I love it so. Um, there's there's also been you know on on the Twitterverse a lot of criticism um, of the Manchester accents from the uh, the main characters, and I feel as a as a Mancunian with an authentic Northern accent, um, I should I should weigh in as an expert. Um, they're not that bad. There are, there are a few issues, like, like all actors, when they have to do, you know, impassioned lines and raised voices and stuff. Some of the vowel sounds do um, drift a bit below Watford. Um, but other than that, I'm definitely not offended. And to be honest, uh, you know, I'd like to hear more Northern accents, especially Manchester accents, <laughs> on hit international series. So I'm quite pleased about it. Brilliant. Fantastic. And, and Max, what have, you, what have you been watching? I mean, this is your something like your fourth or fifth um, time on the podcast. You've watched a lot, had to watch a lot of TV. What, what's, what's on your screens? I've not been watching as much TV as, as perhaps I thought I would have. But, <laughs> but last, uh, last Thursday, I tuned into Charlie Brooker's antiviral wipe uh, on BBC Two from, from Charlie's new indie, Broken Bones, which he runs with Annabelle Jones. Uh, and I've, I found it to be really quite disappointing, actually. I, I, I think it uh, massively struck the wrong tone. The, the Newswipe was, was famous for, for um, satirising news that had happened months beforehand. But what Brooker's mistake seemed to be is, is almost talking about stuff that was happening in the present, in the past, which I just found to be a tad disturbing almost. Uh, it's less funny when you're trying to take the piss out of something that is happening as we speak. A little bit disappointing. I think BBC Two should have held on to it and put it out at the end of the year when there was a little bit of perspective. Uh, but there you go, could pave the way for another series, which I'm sure we would all enjoy. Don't get me wrong, it was funny, but it, for me it seemed a tad misguided and um, the tenses were just a little bit all over the place. Fair enough. Um, and for what it's worth, I've been uh, tuning into ITV's extremely entertaining Harry's Heroes Euro Having a Laugh. Love now, it. Absolutely yeah, the, love it. <laughs> the, the, the slightly clunky pun aside, the, the show, which is produced by Talkback, has been, has been really entertaining. They stripped it across three nights. I caught the first two on Catch Up and, and watched the, the third one live. And it, and it is, is, is good. I mean, you know, some of these footballers, for, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's, um, it's, it's Harry Redknapp, football manager, taking a, around a load of ex-pros uh, to try and get them fit and to avenge uh, avenge um, games which England have lost in the past, nom- uh, namely those to Germany, and um, and it, it's basically a travel log with uh, with some amusing sports references and some actually quite um, hard hitting hard hitting segments from some of the players who who you know battled some of their demons. But it, it, it's it's really well made. It's really slick. It's it's really great. A great show to watch and um i've thoroughly enjoyed it it made me chuckle it made me miss live sport even more i think this is becoming my my whinge every week is my miss of live sport but uh it was it was top notch i i think that's a great collection of of programming there we've really 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 covered some 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 different kinds of shows so thank you very much for those gentlemen thank you for listening to the fifth edition of broadcast news wrap Please make sure to follow us on Twitter at BroadcastNow and to check into our website broadcastnow.co.uk for more analysis. 
I'm international editor John Elms, and I've been speaking with senior reporter Max Volpart and broadcast intelligence lead analyst Jonathan Broughton. Check out the podcast on Spotify and iTunes or via our website. And don't forget to tune in next week for more news wrap as we bring news and analysis from across the television landscape. Goodbye.